All right, welcome back to the Outdoor Adventures podcast. I've got with me in the studio today a really special guest in Jay Yellis. And Jay is a retired professional bass fisherman. And his career spanned from 1989 till 2022, I believe. And uh, Jay won in 2002 the Bassmaster Classic at Alabama's Lay Lake. And we'll talk about that in a little more detail. Um, he was also Angler of the Year in 2003 for Bassmaster and Angler of the Year twice with FLW in 2002 and in 2007. He also received a 2003 ESPY for the Most Outstanding Outdoor Athlete and was inducted into the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame in 2020. So quite a storied career and it's just awesome to have a guy like you here local that's willing to come and talk to us. Thanks, Sam. I'm yeah, glad to be your guest today and look forward to chatting with you. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, I've done a lot of research on Jay, and this is the first time we actually got to meet each other face-to-face. We've talked on the phone a few times, and uh, we actually have a lot of commonalities with each other. So, you know, um, first of all, our faith. So we both believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and died for our sins, and so we're both Christians. Amen. Yeah, so that's, that's awesome to have a, a fellow brother in Christ that's willing to come and talk with us, but also that shares some of the same passions that I do. And so, you know, the way I've kind of organized our talk today is just to talk about our faith a little bit, talk about our family, and then talk about fishing. We also share a similar education background. So I went to Oregon State University, got a fisheries and wildlife degree. I saw that your background was, you got a degree in resource recreational management. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Way, I probably got my degree before you got yours, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mine was in 87. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was 10 years old in 89 when you started fishing. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, quite a storied career, and he's doing a lot of awesome things in the community. So, the first question that I have to you is, you know, around your faith. So, you know, when did Jesus become part of your life, and um, how did your faith keep you going during the good times and bad times? Well, that's a good, great question. And, you know, I got saved in nine, February 28th of 1993. And that's that was the day that I invited Jesus Christ into my heart, made him my Lord and Savior and surrendered my life and my fishing career and my family and everything to, to him. And, uh, you know, repented for my sins and, and asked him for, you know, his forget God's forgiveness, and that only comes through faith in His Son Jesus Christ and His death on the cross and the blood that He shed for our for our sins. And through faith in Him, God forgives us for anything that we've done, and we're made whole and into a perfect right relationship with God. So, I've found that to be totally the truth. And I, you know, that's been like thirty years ago. Yeah. yeah, 30 years ago. So I've been a born-again believer for 30 years, and I, I still remember the day that I surrendered my life to, to the Lord. And, and uh, yeah, it's just been a great run. And he's, you know, he's, he's right there, been right there with me the whole time through th- the thick and thin, the highs and lows of life and, you know, the hard times and the good times. And he's, you know, he doesn't, he promises that he'll be there with us his Holy Spirit will always comfort us and be with us no matter what we're going through. And then life can really throw some curveballs at you. And, and there's a lot of suffering in this world, but you know, God promises he's right there with us to bring us his peace and comfort the whole time. And he's been so faithful that, to me and my family. Yeah. That's awesome. So that was four years into your fishing career then. Was that what you said? Yeah, 1993? About four years. And mm-hmm. yeah, my, my testimony, I'll just briefly go through it, but I, you know, I was, I was raised in an, the Episcopal Church, and I knew about Jesus. I knew who he was, but I didn't know him personally and have a relationship with him. And and uh, and so I started off in my fishing career very selfish, self-seeking, and self-serving, wanting to just do what I wanted to do. And it was all about me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, about what I could accomplish and my dreams and me, 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 me. And and at that time, I was, you know, as a young angler coming up, I looked up to the veteran guys on the pro circuit and what what their philosophies were about life and different things. And there weren't any really 
strong Christian guys that were doing really well on the on the trail back then. So I got caught up following these guys that were like into new age and all kinds of the power of the of self and just followed that for a few years and just it never clicked for me because it's not the truth. I mean, and then I when I heard the gospel for the first time, um, I just received it with joy. And I know I had some people praying for me too throughout that time. And, and then I remember we have a, uh, on the each tournament on the pro circuit, we have a fellowship of Christian angler meeting. And I was invited to that by the um, chaplain. And he had to invite me four or five times before I finally came. He never gave up. Yeah. And I finally came, and I heard the gospel, and, and he asked. I remember he asked if, you know, if you, and we, he prayed the sinner's prayer with everybody about what we talked about earlier about, you know, forgiveness of sin and accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior as payment for your sins, and it's all by faith. And I remember raising my hand that day and and praying that the sinner's prayer and and. and Right then and there, you know, God entered my life, and and the Holy, I was, you know, the Holy Spirit was with me from from there on. That's that's and it just and it and then things, I mean, things really started to click in my tournament fishing, and I started really having a lot of success, and and because that was for His glory, not mine. Yeah, and it's funny how you get to your, you try and try and try on your own to do it. And you can never quite get to where you want to be. But when I surrendered my life to the Lord, he was like, he just blessed my fishing. And I started winning and doing very well in the tournaments. And he was establishing me in order that I'd have a platform to share his love with other fishermen around the country. And that's that's kind of how it all went. It's all it's all about Jesus. <laughs> that's so exciting to, yeah. to hear you share that. Because when I've been researching on you before preparing for today, just reading your articles, you always gave glory to God. It wasn't ever about you. You were always putting the shine on God and Jesus. And I mean, I know you worked really hard and you have a really amazing career, but he was there with you. And part of the thing we talk about on this show is for me, nature is an extension of God, you know? And so when I'm out in nature and his creation, if you will, and I get to see all the amazing things that he's created and the, just the intricacies of the connections between all the things out in, in biology. For me, it, it's almost like an admiration of God and what he's created, or it just kind of does something for my soul being out there. Did you have that experience when you were out fishing too? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, that's that's one of the best things about a career as a professional fisherman is you're outdoors in God's creation all the time. And and it's just something special. I mean, that's, I think we're, you know, it's, we're created to do that. We're, you know, sitting inside a, a room and looking at a computer monitor all day is not nearly as fulfilling as being out in the outdoors, no doubt. So, you know, the, I, the, the other thing I just want to mention, I mentioned how God blessed my fishing career, but the other thing that goes hand in hand with that is, is the work ethic and the, and, and just, doing everything that you can possibly do to be successful. And I, I trained for competitive fishing like I was training for the Olympics. In my mind, I was it's just I was so focused and just it's all I did. So so it's not just, you know, God blessed my fishing career in a big way, but I had to do my part too. Yeah. It's, yeah. It go, they go hand in hand. You got to do everything that – Try real hard like everything depends on you and pray really hard like everything depends on God. And you put those two things together and good things happen. That's a great combination. And then you got a stat sheet like we're looking at today. That's spectacular. So let's talk about your family a little bit. Um, You know, when you were out touring, you know, you don't see a lot of fishermen from the West Coast. We're kind of away from where those tournaments are. Um, it's quite a ways to get to bass fishing. There's not a lot of people that bass fish. What's funny about our show is a lot of the guys that are on here are bass fishermen because we just started doing, I recently started about two years ago, just kayak fishing. Like I was sharing with you before we got started. So, um, talk about how that was for the family, how you guys navigated that as a family, as I know you've got two daughters and your wife. And so as you were out there fishing on a, a really high level, what did that look like for the family? 
Yeah, I've got two great daughters, and uh, they're both out of college now and, and doing well. I've got a grandson even by my oldest daughter, Hannah. And uh, so growing up, though, um, yeah, we tried to get the kids to travel as much as they could when they were little to the tournaments because we're all, you know, I was on the road a couple weeks a month during the tournament season, which is a lot of travel. So when the girls were young, they would come with Jill and I to as many tournaments as possible. And then once they, you know, got in fifth or sixth grade and into middle school, then things really slowed down as they got at, uh, busy with sports and drama and different things at school. And so that cut down, you know, they and how much they could travel. And the older they got, the more plugged in they were into their local community. And so they would, when by the time they were in high school, they would just come to like the big tournaments, the classic and the Forestwood Cup, and different things in the summertime when school was out. Um, and then maybe during spring break they'd hit the road too. But but we, we were always able to make it really well. I mean, with you know with technology nowadays, we could FaceTime every night and talk on the cell phones and keep in touch. And um, and so it yeah it all worked great. I, some of the guys on the circuit they homeschool their kids when they're young, mm-hmm. so they can spend more time with them. But uh, and that's that's quite a popular option actually for the guys on the circuit but yeah family is number one in my life after my relationship with god so i you know we got a really strong family unit and and uh love my girls done a lot of fun stuff with them i enjoyed coaching some of their softball as they were going through high school and middle school and basketball and different things like that and they're doing well and i'm you know we're we do a lot of a lot of stuff as a family, and those are the best best times of the year. Really, is when you take your family vacations and do stuff together as a family. And um, I always the key when you with girls, you got to make time to get them fishing when when the fishing is good. <coughs> Excuse me, they um, and I kind of learned the trick to doing that. You know, they don't getting your kids out on the water is something that's very important, but you don't want you. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. The wrong way to do it is to get them up at 3 a.m. and drive two hours and fish all day, and then in the rain and then drive home. <laughs> That's the wrong. The right way to do it is to you always take them fishing. Maybe get a late start and uh, go out and fish for a couple three hours, catch some fish, and then you always want to go in before they're ready to go in, so that it leaves them longing for more. And that that's really a key deal, is is it's just the opposite of keeping them out there too long. You wanna you wanna go in early before they're ready to go in, and that that way they'll want to go with you next time. That's awesome. That's good advice. So when you were in these tournaments, I noticed you lived in Texas for a period of time. So let's talk about you know Oregon was your home for you went to college at Oregon State, and then you started fishing right out of college, right on the professional mm-hmm. tour. And so a lot of the tournaments are what Midwest or East Coast or yeah they're all they're in the eastern half of the country um, primarily in the southeast but we in the summer we'd go up to Michigan and New York and places like that and then um, so let's dive into your fishing career a little bit so I um, oh that was the other question I had so when you're in let's say you were going to a tournament and you're in Oregon at that time. Are you flying all your gear out there? Are you oh, taking no. a big tour bus? What's your? Yeah. How do you get all your stuff? <laughs> That's a out good there? question. So I, I would, um, yeah. The last fifteen years of my career, I lived in Oregon, and prior to that, um, I spent seventeen years in Texas just to get closer and more centrally located. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but the last fifteen years, I kept a, my boat and my truck in Texas, and so or wherever the next tournament was going to be, and I'd fly back and forth. So typically if we had a tournament, say, in Texas, and then the next one was in South Carolina after the tournament in Texas, I'd drive to South Carolina, leave my boat with a friend, um, and then fly back here, and then I'd fly back to South Carolina and fish, and then the next tournament might be in Missouri and I'd drive to Missouri and leave the boat with a friend and the thing is I've done that after doing it for 30 years you have friends all over the country and dropping your boat at someone's house for a couple weeks is 
not a problem. So that's that's how I did it. Yeah, the drive is just too much to drive from here to. It's like three or four days back to the you know in the southeast. Yeah, well, and Brent Norlander was on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, Jay, you don't realize it, but this guy is like a. And he, if he goes over on that part of the world, you know, his face is on the lures in the stores. Like people know who this guy is. He goes, it's like going around with a professional, anything else, you know, because you're pretty famous out on that part of the world. Yeah. You know, Oregon and bass fishing don't, they don't really, um, it's not, or the state isn't synonymous with bass fishing. It's, we're known for, or, uh, in Oregon for salmon, steelhead, trout, primarily. We've got some good bass fishing, you know, notably like the Columbia River and, some other, you know, that's our best fishery for bass with smallmouth. But then there's some there's some decent largemouth fishing, on, you know, on a net, on a comparative basis to the rest of the nation in Oregon. But yeah, in the southeast, that's all they have is the bass and freshwater fish like crappie and brim and catfish. And then they have you know the ocean too, the Gulf. But but Oregonians aren't really into bass fishing. I know they have tournaments up here. I know because I fished them when I was in college at Oregon State and they still have them today, but they're lightly attended. They get 30 to 50 boats in a tournament. And um, it's actually Oregon's like the, I think it it's one of the very few states, might be the only state in America that does not have a bass boat dealer in the state of Oregon. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that pretty much says it all right yeah. there. There's a lot of aluminum boats and a lot of boats built for rivers, but yeah, you're right. So, and I noticed uh, that you helped out with Oregon State University bass fishing team from time to time. I don't know if you're still doing that. I do. But- yeah, I was down there a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. talking to those guys and I, I was been with them since they've started that in 2009. And uh, I like to go down and visit with them and see the, you know, the new faces. And it's turned over a lot over the years, like any college uh, sport does. But they, bass fishing is just at a collegiate level is just on a, on a club basis. And um, but it's actually college fishing has become a big deal nationwide. They have uh, very competitive, like a national championship and. And we've had, had some kids from Oregon State compete in the national championship. In fact, this year, two of the kids com- qualified and drove all the way to Florida to compete in the national championship. So some really stellar fishermen at Oregon State. And the, the Ducks used to have a fishing team, but they I guess they lost interest in it. They don't have the kids because they haven't had a bass club in about – four years, maybe five years, but for a while there from like 2009 to 2016 or so, I would organize a bass fishing civil war each year between the ducks and beavers. And I'd get some of my friends with bass boats and the kids would come out. We'd have a fun tournament. We've had that on the Columbia, on the Willamette at Fern Ridge, um, uh, Cottage Grove Lake, Fern Ridge, so it's yeah, that was a lot of fun. Hopefully the ducks will get a team again one day and we'll be able to get yeah. reignite the bass fishing civil war. Yeah, get the rivalry going yeah. again. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'm gonna go back to the beginning here and just talk to you about how you started fishing. Just, you know, who first put a rod in your hand? Was it did you just, you know, come out of your mama's womb and start fishing, or was there more to it than that? Well, my grandparents, my grandfathers were the first ones really to take me fishing. I can remember fishing with my paternal grandfather back on he was lived in new york and we'd fish on sandy pond which is a lake off off of uh, lake ontario and i remember fishing with him and and catching my first bass on a jitterbug off of his dock that that's a topwater lure and that kind of got me hooked and i was a little guy back then and then my, my maternal grandfather retired in Lincoln City and so I remember I can still remember him taking me out on a salmon charter boat out at Trade Winds Charters in Depot Bay when I was about five years old and I I can still remember the what we caught that day and how the wind changed directions and all I mean it yeah so my they started me and then my dad he he liked to fish he was not uh, an avid angler but he enjoyed fishing and so he would he'd take me and then in, in high school, I had a good friend that was, uh, he and I started really fishing like every weekend. So, and then I had a mentor that taught me how to fish all through high school and college. And he, he was our old retired gentleman that was, uh, 
very savvy when it came to ba- come to bass fishing, and he he retired on on Lake Kachuma in Southern California, and he uh, he would fish that lake five days a week. That's what he did in his retirement, and it and he was just a wealth of information. This is back before the internet, and you know there was hard to learn the sport those days and now it's super easy but back then you had to learn how to catch fish from another human being yeah you weren't watching youtube videos on how to tie up different rigs and so yeah that's how i I got started for me and and i was very fortunate to have a great mentor bill cedar who taught me so much about about the the ways of the bass and you know what how they respond to the environmental changes and and how to catch them so how did you go from, you know, that level to being on the West Coast and saying, I'm going to be a tournament bass fisherman? Like, how did that aspiration? Yeah, that's fu- kind of, that's a good question. Because I, when I was in high school, I went to high school in uh, Santa Barbara, California. And that's where I met my Bill Cedar, my fishing mentor. And that's kind of where I got started bass fishing. But then I came to college at Oregon State and I started fishing a lot up here. And uh, I think when I was in high school is when I had the vision of becoming a, a professional bass fisherman. And I remember telling my parents about it. And they didn't know I have a clue <laughs> of that you could even make a, a living doing it. And they, like, they, they said, well, you do whatever you want, follow your dreams, but you should get a college education first, which is sage advice. It, even today, it's really solid advice and it's, College is even more appealing now that there's competitive fishing clubs in college, bass fishing clubs. And so, yeah, that's how how it all started. And then let's fast forward to 2002. So I I saw the pictures of your wife and your daughters when you won the 2002 Bassmaster Classic and everybody's smiling at the end and you're holding a trophy. But really kind of a historic tournament. Like the things you did in that tournament over those days hadn't really been done before. Like we talked before we got started, you were the first one to get the daily big bass every single day in the tournament. You know, and that just doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. It, it's never. It's still the only time it's ever happened in the history of competitive fishing. And the reason is, it's just we're not out there trying to catch the biggest fish of the day. We're trying to catch you know a solid three or four pound average, and usually the the big fish is pretty random. It's just, you know, somebody gets lucky, makes a lucky cast and catches a seven-pound bass. And uh, there aren't many of those out there in the lake. So to catch the biggest fish is and, – and so it's just a – to me, it's just a – you know, you have a – in a classic, there was 50 other competitors. So you had a one in 50 chance to catch the big fish one day. And then to do it all three days, it's, you know, one in 50 times 50 times 50. So that's a really high number. I don't know. Yeah. So, so that, that's why it's never happened before. It's like, um, it's a, it's a, that the odds of it are, are really long odds, but yeah, it was just meant to be, I, that was my 12th classic that I'd fished and, um, I'd finished as high as third in the past, but never really been close to winning it. And it was just in God's perfect timing. It was my turn to win. And you know, when it's, when it's your turn, you just, you can't stop it. I mean, it's just, he's it's things are going to happen. It's meant to be. That momentum was just, you know, the wind was behind you, if you will. I mean, and you, you know, I also read that you were the fourth guy and the last time it happened was 1984 that went wire to wire that day, which I means like you started in the lead and Mm -hmm. you finished in the lead, right? Nobody ever caught up to you. Yeah. That's, that's how it went. And it, it, uh, it happens like that every now and then, but it's pretty unusual. It just happened. I was just returned from the classic in tennessee last week and the, we had a wire to wire winner this year but it's it's most unusual it usually doesn't happen that way but it did the year i won to also yeah that's uh, had to be uh, quite an experience to be at the top of the top of the class you know like the elite athlete in your group and oh yeah that's a dream come true it's it's like winning the super bowl or the world series you know that's the biggest fishing tournament in the world each year and the whole it's not just a tournament the whole the whole industry is gathered there in that city for that event they have a huge classic expo it's a big outdoor show and every fishing manufacturer is there with a 
with a booth and displays of boats and ta- all the tackle and electronics and clothing and you name it. If it has anything to do with fishing, everybody's there. So it's a big celebration of bass fishing. And to win it is just a phenomenal, you know, dream come true. Right. And that was like 20 years ago, and it's still a big deal. I mean, it's – there's very – I think it's – there's – it's a small number of people that ever have ever won that tournament. There's been a few guys that more won it more than once, but not many. I think there's only been like 40 some winners of it in the history of the sport. Well, like I've read, you know, you, when you talked about it, it's just everything worked out for you. And mm-hmm. you, you know, that's the right attitude to have. Like everything has to fall perfectly in a line to win that event. It does. And for your listeners that like to fish, you, you know how some days everything just goes right. You can't do anything wrong. You, and you end up catching more fish than anybody else on the lake or on the river that day. It was just your day. You know, you catch them early, you catch them midday, you catch them late in the day, you just catch them all day. And and not every day is like that. In fact, they're seldom, um, you know, so, and you have other days where everything goes wrong and mm-hmm. everybody around you is catching them and you can't get a bite. I mean, we've all had that happen, but most days kind of fall in the middle of that where you, you catch some, yeah, but yeah, it was it was pretty awesome to have a, a a day where everything went right, or three days in a row where everything went right in the world championship. Yeah, and so 2002 from 2007, from what I looked at, you were pretty much on fire. So you you know in 2003, yeah. you were the Bassmaster uh, Angler of the Year, and in 2002, you were the FLW Angler of the Year. You repeated that in 2007. And then in 2003, you also got that SB for the most outstanding outdoor athlete. So let's talk about the difference between Master Bassmaster and FLW, if you will, for a minute, for those that don't have sure. any idea. Sure, yeah. There's, so there's been two professional bass fishing circuits for a long time. The Bassmasters is the original that started in the 1967, and that was the only professional bass fishing circuit for – 30 years and then F- the FLW tour started in 1996 and they just and they've been going ever since they just got bought out by Major League Fishing so Major League Fishing absorbed the FLW tour and so today we still have uh, two professional circuits you've got the Bassmaster tour and then the the uh, Major League Fishing tour which is combined with FLW now. So yeah, there's two two professional circuits and it's kind of like well they they're actually quite competitive with each other. I was going to say it's like the American League and National League and baseball, but it's not they're not this in the same league. They're two competitive entities and uh, but it, what's great is it gives more guys a chance to make a living at it because there's um there's two fields to participate in. Yeah, you took a hiatus from uh, Bassmasters for a while and only fished on mm-hmm. FLW for a period of your career, right? I did, yeah. So I started out with bass in 89, and I fished just the Bassmaster Tour through 2005. And then in 2006 to 2018, I fished the FLW Tour. And there was two or three years in there where I fished both tours, like 2000. One, two thousand two, two thousand three, and those actually were my best years because I fished. I had a tournament, you know, th- three weeks out of every month. I had a tournament. It was crazy, but I, I couldn't keep that pace up because with a young family and all, and so I cut back to just one tour, and uh, and then in two thousand nineteen, I went back to the Bassmaster Elite Series and finished my cir- my career there. The last four years. Yeah. I mean, quite a career. It's amazing. And so you were inducted into the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame in 2020. Describe that experience and what that meant to you. But also, let's back up before we talk about that and talk about that SB award. Because a lot of people are familiar with the SBs. It's an ESPN event, and you've got all the athletes from basketball and football and tennis. And, and you're the outstanding outdoor athlete, you know, representing your brand and your sport you know, out there alone. And that had to be quite an experience. That was, that was a huge honor. And that's held every year in uh, Hollywood at the Kodak theater. So it, they flew my wife, Jill and I out to Hollywood first class. And we, we, uh, I got, I don't have time for all the stories, but I can tell you one fun one is they, when we got to the, to the theater, they had a red carpet walk where you, everybody goes in 
and uh, and all the different people that were nominated lined up, and they'd be introduced, and they'd walk up the red carpet into the theater, and they had a chain link fence on both sides of the carpet that was like ten feet high, and it, to keep the fans back, it was just loaded with fish uh, fans along both sides, and I I they put me in line right behind um, Eric Dickerson. No way, it was Emmett Smith and then Serena Williams and then and they all everybody's cheering for all these guys. And then they introduce and now nominated for the outdoor athlete of the year, Jay Yellis. And you could have heard a pin drop down there in <laughs> Southern California. Nobody knew anything about professional bass fishing. But I ended up getting uh, nominated and and uh and I was uh fortunate enough to win it that year and two of my competitors were labrador retrievers <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> yeah, no, so, and then there was a any one of the olympic got olympic uh marksman a shooter and i can't remember who the other nominees were but it was yeah that was right in the pinnacle of my career there's only been two professional bass fishermen that have won that over the years so i'm really thankful that uh it was my turn back in 03 yeah that's that's such a cool story and so, so let's talk about recently this uh hall of fame induction what did that feel like to you oh that was amazing yeah that was that that more than anything is uh probably a a, a career pinnacle to be get inducted into the bass fishing hall of fame and that was um you know just a tremendous honor they because it, it recognizes a you know, the whole body of work over 35 years that you, and it's not just for your performance, but it's also, you know, I can't remember their mission statement, but it has something to do with your performance and having a positive impact on the fishing community or the culture of bass fishing. And so that's, it's, yeah, it's tremendous honor. We, we went back for that, my wife and my daughters and my son-in-law and my mom and dad, we all flew back to Springfield for that ceremony. And, and I got to, um, you know, talk uh, with my acceptance speech in front of everybody. All the, the industry is there. It's a huge banquet, you know, black tie affair. So it was really neat to get up there and, and uh, give God the glory. Is yeah. What, yeah, it was, it was, it was fun. To be recognized for all the things that you were able to do over that period of time. I mean, we talked before we got started too that, you know, you uh, were in the top 10 for five decades. Just the way that your career spanned out was starting in 1989 and you were able to get in the top 10 right away. And then in the right. 90s and the 2000s yeah. and then 2010 and then 2020, you were still doing it. That was, so. yeah, That that's a very trivial fact about my career, but it's also one of the the accomplishments that would be most difficult to duplicate, to have a top 10 finish on the Bassmaster Elite Series in five different decades. And it, my career just overlapped the late 80s and the early 2020s. But still, it's it's trivial, but it's uh, really hard to do. Yeah, that's, that's really neat. I yeah. think that's a really neat statistic. It, uh, Technology-wise, over that time period, there had to be so much oh change. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Just in electronics, probably the biggest thing. We, You know, back in the 80s, we just had those Lowrance flashers. That's it. That was it. That's all we had was flashers. And then you end your, ending your career with uh, Garmin LiveScope and all the forward-facing sonar, which has revolutionized the sport. So, yeah, just it's been – it's. It's a lot of change over those 35 years. Well, that type of technology, I'm sure you can see every rock almost compared to oh, yeah, you know, you before can. you're just checking depth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you can see the fish swimming all around the boat. So, I mean, it's most of the pro tournaments now are one using the forward-facing sonar. Hmm. It's, in fact, the Bass Elite Series this year, they've had three events so far, and all three were won. The winner was just looking at his catch on forward-facing sonar and then casting to him, and it's yeah, it's totally revolutionized the sport of of bass fishing, and it's great for crappie fishing and any kind of um, any kind of fishing really, where you can you see the fish around the boat, and it's just really handy technology. But it's not. I tell people ask me about that stuff all the time about forward-facing sonar. It takes a lot of hours to learn how to use that properly. It's not like you're just going to go buy it. It's expensive. I mean, you'll spend four grand on a unit and a live scope 
transducer, and you it, you just don't go out and spend four grand, put it on your boat, and just start winning tournaments. Become a tournament bass champion. No, yeah, it's like a, it it takes so much training to. I mean, it takes dozens of hours to learn how to use it properly, and then and uh, so it's a it's definitely it's a wonderful tool, but it takes some expertise to use it correctly. Yeah, so let's talk about tournament preparation. I think a lot of people don't even know what goes into these tournaments. And so when I researched a little bit on that tournament that you won, you had fished it 30 days earlier for a six-day practice window. And I read an article that you had found a spot where you're mostly catching stripers because there was really good bait fish and the way the currents worked out and stuff. And But you didn't really catch any largemouth there but you just knew it was a good fishy spot and you were going to go back there. But just in general, when you're preparing for a tournament, how much prep fishing do you normally get to do? Is it always standardized? Does it change depending on the tournament? Well, the tournament circuits have a standardized practice um, and, and an off-limits period also preceding each event. So typically, typically the, you can fish a lake up to within 30 days of the tournament. Then the lake goes off-limits for 30, 30 days, and then you have a three-day practice period before the competition starts. And so traveling to a lake 30 days before you compete it just doesn't do you any good as far as figuring out what the fish are doing but it just helps you to learn how to navigate if you've never been there and learn the playing field and then when you go back for the actual event you have three days to try to figure out what the fish are doing now and how to catch them and, and that's before the fishing starts that's before the competition starts and it's it's a you know it's a very important uh, period of time it's usually when the foundation is laid for either a good tournament or a really bad tournament and you, it all depends on your practice approach and your strategies and and how and, and that varies for everybody different you know differently some some guys spend their whole practice or most of it looking around on their electronics and not fishing much just looking to see where the fish are and then other guys like to just fish and get a bite to get confidence and they know what the fish will bite and so everybody has a different style during the practice period, but you you don't want to catch a lot of fish during practice because bass won't bite again, you know, for at least 30 days, typically very rare to have a catch a fish one day and catch it again, two days later, very rare. And so you, it's a fine art practice is you, you definitely don't want to burn your fish and catch them because they don't count in practice. So you want to, you want to find some fish, figure out how to catch them, but don't catch too many. Yeah. And then weather patterns, obviously, if you're fishing one weather pattern, a storm front comes in, that could change your whole, where you're going to go. It does. And what you're gonna yeah. Do. We, we've seen everything happen. We were at a tournament a couple years ago at Pickwick Lake in Alabama where it rained. It never stopped raining for three days of practice and the lake came up like and flooded. I mean, it came up like 15 feet, and it just practice was totally useless, 100%. And so everybody was on the same field yeah, at that the, point. When the first day of the tournament, the lake was flooded and it had risen 15 feet, and it was a low land reservoir. Um, and and anyway, so that was some, but most of the, that was the exception rather than the norm. Normally, the lakes stay pretty consistent. You know, and then you just, but the weather changes and you'll have fronts, you'll have wind or no wind or sun or clouds or rain. And even those daily weather changes greatly affect how, you know, how, how to catch the fish. Yeah. You're switching up your gear probably. Mm -hmm. So also on that regard, when the tournament starts, is there, there's a start time and an end time each day, right? Right. Yeah. Every day it's usually right about daylight, first safe light. And then the weigh-in starts at three o'clock, and they stagger the check-in times. Um, the guys that go out first have to come in first, and then the last flight that goes out, they come in usually like four thirty is the last flight. So that that way that you know the the not everybody shows up at once, and then you have to wait an hour and a half to weigh your fish in. It's, it's better for the fish to keep them in an aerated live well as long as possible. That's good. And then is there penalties and stuff if you come in late where you lose some Yeah, it's ounces a, pound, or a pound per minute up to, okay. and then after 15 minutes late, your catch is disqualified for the day. So I've only been late a couple times in my career. 
and that was all because of the wind and I was a long ways away. Mm. We were at Lake Champlain last summer or two summers ago and I the, the darn weather forecast was like for zero to five mile an hour wind. So I ran 80 miles down the lake and it's a big open lake and some of it's like seven miles across. I mean, it's huge. It's like being on the ocean yeah, when that wind picks fishing, up. And I caught, catch my fish and, and uh, the fishing was not quite as fast as I wanted it to be. And, and, uh, I had, and then the, at noon, the wind started blowing, picking up, picking up. And I had to head back like at one thirty, And by the, by one o'clock, it was blowing 30 miles an hour. And there's no way I, I had such a, you know, it was 80 miles from where I needed to be. And now I've got three and four foot waves and I made it back, but I was late. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, my butt, Took quite a beating, I yeah. must say, that day. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. No, you were crashing your way back. Yeah, bass, professional bass fishing is not, it's it's a hard way to make a living because you're traveling a lot. You're always on the road. It's very competitive. Um, the you know you have to catch more fish than the best fishermen in the country, and and then you have to deal with the weather and and uh, high winds and cold rain this and that you're you know, you're you get beat up pretty good by the weather sometimes and so it's it's tough you got to be ready for anything oh yeah is there um restrictions in those tournaments as far as how you have to land a fish because sometimes on tv you'll see people with a net and it's like they've got a, a designated netting person on the boat with them other times you'll see guys grab them or just kind of yard them in yeah they uh depends on the circuit that you're fishing but i think the elite series and the the bass pro tour both the top tours don't allow nets and they they do that because it makes it more sporting and entertaining for the tv audience to to try to land a fish with your hands and do you have to land it yourself so yeah. do you have to be you know grabbing yeah, you can't the fish get, and... yeah you, well in the other in the circuits that allow the use of a net your partner that's in your boat your your amateur that are in the boat they can net the fish for you when i fished the flw tour they allowed nets for a long and so you're yeah you were paired each day with an amateur as a pro-am style and they could net your fish for you every now and then they'd knock them off oh yeah <laughs> and so a lot of times we would i would net my own fish yeah that's not a good way to make friends with a pro no. angler yeah. <laughs> it's happened it happens to everybody though they they don't mean to but if you people get excited with a net especially with like crankbaits and stuff and if you you there's a right way to net fish and a wrong way to net fish you want to get them head first for one thing and uh, you don't want to get too excited and try to jab at them when they're still hot and running around or you'll get you get treble hooks caught in the net and that's usually how things go wrong in a hurry if you yeah. have a crankbait with one treble hook in a fish and the other one in the net usually the fish ends up getting away back in the lake yep. yeah so um is there gear restrictions on the tournaments too where you have certain gear that's yeah, allowed there's, cer there's certain restrictions like the length of your rod i think can be eight feet is the longest rod you can use and um there's certain like the alabama rig <clears throat> style of baits you cannot fish those you have to fish one one bait and um that's there may be some others I can't think of right now, but oh, you you have to use artificial lures. You can't use live bait. So there are yeah, there's some restrictions. We've talked about that. How if you show up on a bass fishing trip and you have worms, like real live worms, none of the other bass fishermen are going to take you seriously. Yeah, <laughs> because you know everybody fishes plastics of some type, generally or plugs or whatever. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about just other mishaps that can happen out there with, you know, the sun or with bugs. Like if there's a bunch of mosquitoes on a lake or, you know, have you lost a lot of rods or snapped rods or dropped them in the water or those types of kind of mishaps that happen while you're out there? Oh yeah. There's, there's always a lot of different things that can happen while you're fishing. And, and, uh, we've had one of the things one of the worst things in the southeast is lightning that can happen and i've you know guys get hit by lightning there's been people killed by lightning i one time i was on lake tyler in texas with a, a friend and we were running down the lake and we were on plane running about 30 miles an hour and it was there was no boat wakes in there at all and uh, we had a rod on the front deck of my skeeter boat and it 
it just blew out of the boat into the lake, which that's never happened before. And so we stopped the boat, and about 10 seconds later, like 100 feet in front of us, a huge lightning bolt cracked down on the water. So I was like, thank you, Lord, for having that rod blow out at just the right moment, or we might have been hit by lightning. Just slow you down <laughs> oh a little bit. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a true story. Yeah, that's God yeah, looking out for you again. That's right. But we, yeah, there's, um, oh, there's, there's all kinds of stories of how you have fish. Guys will have fish in their boat, in their live well, and then they'll open the lid, and a fish will jump out and escape oh. and go back in the lake. And uh, there was one time in the Bassmaster Classic World Championship, Year, this is probably 25 years ago. The guy had the winning fish, and he was had. It, we have measuring boards that we measure. Have, usually, there's a minimum length. It has to be like, and I think in this case it was 14 inches. And so he was measuring the fish, and you could see anybody watching the film could see it was easily over that length. And he was measuring the measuring board was on the front deck of his bass boat, and as he measured the fish, he lost control of the fish. It, squirmed out of his hands and it flopped on the deck and went back in the lake. Oh, no. And it cost him winning the, the tournament and winning the world championship. Wow. And he was never the same after that. And oh, he, yeah. he fished a couple more years and, and was gone. And Talk that, about I mean, that's, the, the one that got away. That's, 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 the, yeah, that's <laughs> the one that got away. That's Yeah, so there's there you know, that's just the nature of fishing, though. You there Those darn fish, you'll get losing those fish usually they come off while they're hooked in the water but every now and then you'll get one in the boat and it'll escape your capture as well how many rods are you normally taking when you go out oh you usually you have you know about seven or so seven or eight on the front deck of your boat and i know there's guys that'll have 20 out there it's pretty pretty crazy i never i always liked it when i had maybe four or five because that meant you knew what the fish were biting on you're get pretty dialed in on how to catch them and usually when you have too many rods on the front deck it's a sign that you're lack confidence and you're not sure what they're gonna bite and mm -hmm. so you have everything out and that's usually you, you don't do as well as when you're really confident and and you know what you're gonna catch them on going in yeah. So I've got a few questions from my cousin, Dylan, who's frequently on the show with me. Um, he wanted to know your personal best fish. And I don't know if yeah. that was during tournament or just leisure fishing. Actually, on... my best fish was during a tournament. It was 11 pounds and 11 ounces. And I caught it in a Bassmaster uh, Top 100 at Lake Toho in Florida in 2001. And it was on a spawning bed. I saw it before I caught it. That's awesome. And then uh, he also asked, you know, if the weather and watercolor is really going to change what you're going to be throwing out there generally. So you may have one plan and you get there and the water's a little murkier or you get a little weather coming in. Are you are you changing right away or are you going to throw out what you originally were going to start with? Gosh, it does. It, it, you know, there's so many different lures out there for bass fishing and, and it's all – uh, and the reason is there's so many different environments and conditions that you can fish in. And, and so, yeah, there's, uh, that's one of the things you want to be able to learn to read the water and look at the, wa the water clarity, the water depth, the water temperature. If it's windy or calm or cloudy or sunny, all those things factor into what you fish with. And I, um, Color wise, on with, like with soft plastics, you know, like the darker colors, like a black and blue, is great when it's dark. But if it's a bright day or the middle of the day, uh, like a more green pumpkin or brown is is a better color. And and uh, usually, like with a, some other lures, like a spinnerbait or a chatterbait, usually a white is a great color. No matter what the conditions are, sometimes you'll fish more of a darker color, like a green pumpkin. On, a, on those type baits, but um, crankbaits, usually you're trying to match what the fish are eating, well, crawdads. Up here, crawdads are good. We don't have shad in Oregon, so in the south, shad-colored baits are really popular um, because that's what the fish are eating. Did you have a favorite go-to as your fishing evolved that was like, okay, if things are tough, this is the, the one thing oh, I'm going to throw out there? Yeah, if it's tough, like a Senko is hard to beat. You know, you can always catch fish on that. There's so many ways to rig it from a Carolina rig to a shaky head, wacky rig, Texas rig. Um, 
you can drop shot it. You can do everything with a Senko. So that's yeah, that's a good go to when it's tough. But I'd I'd much rather catch fish on a jig or spinner bait, chatter bait. Are you going to get a better hook set typically on one of those too? <laughs> yeah, any lure with a single hook in it, you're going to get a better hook set than a treble hook. Mm-hmm. And you'll you'll land a higher percentage of fish with a single hook as opposed to a treble. The other question he had was, what's the most beautiful place you think you've ever fished? Oh, I that'd be a toss-up. I think um, Lake Powell in Arizona is just a phenomenal. It's like a phenomenal, beautiful place to fish. It's it's like you're fishing in the Grand Canyon. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I imagine you've fished pretty much all over the country, right? Mm-hmm. And all. And maybe all over the world with the way you fished and and all the things you've yeah, done. Yeah, like that's a beauty. Clear Lake in California, I think that's a one of my most beautiful lakes I've ever seen too, with Mount Kanokdai there on the horizon, and and then back east there's some really pretty lakes too. Things are pretty flat back there though, so you don't have a lot of mountains and hills. I don't know being up at hood river and seeing mount hood in the background while you're catching smallmouth is that's pretty spectacular too so i i guess i'd have to say the west the most beautiful fisheries are in the west just because of all the mountains we have here we're spoiled i don't think I know. people know how spoiled we are until they go their places you know yeah. um i and I, I know we've talked about all kinds of different things i'm peppering you with questions but um you know, I really looked through a lot of your statistics, and I, I think these ones were Bassmaster only stats, so it didn't have your FLW stuff. But it showed your total weight, and this is just on the bass side, was six thousand seven hundred and four pounds and nine ounces of fish caught. So you know, three tons of fish. Now, I imagine if you add your FLW on top of that, that was probably double those numbers. Would you think? Do you know your total poundage you've got? Yeah, I don't know, but I I fished FLW from '06 to '18, so 12 years, and I fished bass for uh, 20 years or something like that. So it would be a little bit less. It's probably four to five thousand pounds on FLW because it didn't do it too as long as i fished bass but that's a lot of bass that's five to six tons of bass that's a lot of bass that's that's unbelievable i mean it's just an amazing statistic and at bass you're you had a 71 percent win rate in the money so finishing the money yeah yeah well that's important because that's how you got to get paid that's why we're out there if you're trying to if you want to make a living you need to get paid so yeah and the numbers i found on flw this was just for the tackle warehouse uh pro circuit you'd caught 950 total fish just on that particular circuit. And then there was other, you know, tournaments that they separated it out from there. Right. But it's just the quantity of fish that you caught in your career is just amazing. Yeah, well, that 35 years is a lot, a lot of fishing, a yeah. lot of bass fishing. Yeah. Yeah, I've caught enough bass for several lifetimes. Right. <laughs> That's why when I'm home, I, I'd rather steelhead fish or salmon fish just because I've, I've – done so much bass fishing that i mean that's all you know that's been my job for 35 years so it's i i thoroughly i still love to fish and there's oregon's got so many great other other species to fish for and i love to eat fish so i do i really enjoy you know the diversity that we have up here and you were on track to make um the big tournament again for the 17th time and then you had um, some tendonitis going on in your... Oh, last year. Yeah, I did. I had, for the first time in my whole life, I got really bad tendonitis in both elbows um, from re- too much casting, just repetitiveness. And I think age had something to do with that too. But what caused that was braided line. And braid is, it's one of the, braid's a great fishing tool, but boy, it doesn't have any stretch. And so you're, you're elbows wrists shoulders are the ones that take the the brunt of the blow when you're using braided line and all the guys that i know in fishing that have ever had uh, arm injuries it's all because of braided line so that's something to keep in mind if you're if you know as you're fishing and especially for the younger guys listening it's a great tool but there's a price to pay yeah. And it's tendon ice is actually very common among professional fishermen just cuz they especially in the elbows it, they just it's repetitive use. 
Well, and you're fishing probably fairly high pound test generally. And the braid is, you know, you have a high pound test, but it's a thinner line. But you fished left-handed and right-handed. So, and right. you're setting those hooks pretty aggressively. So, and probably you getting do. hung up sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely want you use a hard hook set. But it's it's just the, it's the seven days in a row thing that gets you. You do it something seven days in a row, and then you get a, a week off and you get another week fishing every day for a week and you you can't t- baby yourself either you can't just set the hook half as hard as you normally would because you'll probably miss that fish and it's so it's it's a bad cycle once something starts going south it's hard to keep it from st- snowballing in the wrong direction as yeah. far as a bodily injury yeah you don't have enough recovery time there's between. no re- there is no recovery time and and so, yeah, I think that caught up with me there at the end. But it's uh, – I was thankful I had 34 years of injury-free fishing, which is yeah. – I'll take that. If you'd have told me back in the 80s I was going to have 34 years of injury-free fishing and then bad tendonitis in year 35, I'd have taken that in a heartbeat. Oh, all day long. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I go out with my buddies now, and I, I'm liable to put a hook in their ear, you know. So, I mean, <laughs> you're doing pretty darn good. And the uh, – Back to that note, when you get off of seven days in a row of fishing like that, are you icing yourself down? Is there any kind of thing you do to try to recover? No, you you could you could ice and take on ibuprofen, you know, to keep the swelling down for sure. But you you can see the pain the painful areas that will swell up on you a little bit. So that helps. It's just like a pitcher, you know, in baseball or softball when they they want to ice their shoulder down after a game just to keep the swelling down. Yeah. Well, I've got a couple more things to talk to you about. And uh, uh, the next thing on the list is kind of a a, a recent topic in that, that walleye cheating that kind of came out. We all saw these kind of articles and it hit the national stage. I just read an article last night that two of the people involved in that pled guilty and they reduced their charges dramatically. They I think they lost their boat and their truck. But they they had thrown a whole bunch of charges at them, and because mm. they wanted to to make it a serious thing, um, how did you feel about that when that all went down? And you know, is a, is the cheating thing highly unlikely because it's so regulated that it probably wouldn't happen in the bass circuits? Um, yeah, but, that's. I, well, first of all, I, yeah, it was awful with those guys. I mean, it was criminal behavior, and it's just funny the things that people will do to for an ego stroke to to win an event and they'll cheat to win a fishing tournament. That's just crazy. Yeah. But there's people out there that'll do that. So um, on the professional bass fishing side, there really is no way to cheat and win because you have a camera, a live camera in your boat filming your every move all day long. Yeah. It's impossible. There's no way you're slipping some lead no. weights in the stomach. No, no. You know? no but... Um, but that walleye circuit, they don't they don't have cameras in the boats, and it's a team tournament. Um, the other thing in the bass fishing, there on the pro level, there's no team tournaments. Um, the pro the closest thing would be a pro am, where a pro and an amateur are paired together for a day of fishing. But the the pairing is always random, and it always you, it always occurs the evening before you go fishing the next day. So you have no time to scheme or plan to cheat with somebody that, because you don't know who you're fishing with until the night before. So those things have kept cheating and bass fishing to a minimum. Um, And it's like I say, it's impossible on the elite series or the bass pro tour to cheat because you have a camera, a live camera in your boat. But, but yeah, it's at the smaller level, there's smaller, you know, like a state local team tournament or a walleye tournament or a bass tournament sure you could get away with cheating at those team at the team tournament level but the thing of it you know guys know that if they ever get caught they're they're done yeah and why would you want to especially why on a local tournament yeah, with a small I mean, purse what, or and that totally takes the ch- the challenge away i mean well, i can't imagine the mindset but i but anyway yeah, i thought it was awful but i'm glad they caught them and and uh, we don't need any of that in fishing it's it's too great of a sport to to cheat at for any, by sure. Yeah, and I know I read you know a story on you when you retired, and you said you know I'm retiring from the circuit, but I'm still going to be fishing. 
you know, so you're oh, not, yeah. you're not turning up your rods. You're still going to be oh, out no. there fishing, but you know, let's shift gears and talk about what you're doing now. So, um, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're the executive director for cast for kids. Uh, and maybe that's the, t- I don't have your title quite right, but tell us, you know, share with us what cast for kids is for someone that has no idea what that program is. Um, I know the research I did that it came out in 1991, um, and that you've hosted as an organization, 1140 events in total. And I, I read a quote from you that, um, we're in 35 States and there's going to be 80 events coming up, you know, this, this coming season for cast for kids, but tell us more about, well, the other stat that I had was there was 150,000, disabled and disadvantaged kids that have gotten on the water thanks to that organization. So tell us kind of your involvement. I think you've been involved with them for about eight years, but, Mm -hmm. you know, clear up anything I said wrong there. Sure. Yeah, the Cast for Kids Foundation is uh, a nonprofit charity, and we exist to enrich the lives of children with special needs through the sport of fishing. And so we they're put on one-day fishing events for special needs kids and they come with their caretaker, their parent or guardian, and they're paired up with a volunteer to to enjoy a morning of fishing. And that's followed by a lunch for everybody. And then an award ceremony where we celebrate each child. They get an award plaque with their photo in it. Everybody cheers for them. And it's just a, it's just a wonderful day for those kids. They just love it because they don't have an opportunity to be celebrated very often and that they never, a lot of them have never been fishing before. So we're introducing them to a new hobby. Fishing is something that anybody can enjoy no matter what your, your physical or mental limitation is, you can still enjoy going fishing. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a great charity. It started in 1991 and I was asked to be on the board of directors in 2005 so I was on the board for 10 years. And then when the founder retired in 2014, um, I moved from being a board member to being the executive director. And so I'm running the foundation on a day-to-day basis. So I've been doing that, you're right, for about eight years. This is my eighth year. And I, I just really passionate about it. It's a great way to give back and share the, my love of fishing with some kids that would never otherwise get an opportunity to go fishing and it's it's so much fun so i um you're right i did i retired from pro fishing into a full-time job of running the cast for kids foundation so we have events all over the country and like like you said about 35 states and we have we'll have five or six in oregon this year and and uh you go to our website and see where those are at cat the website is cast for kids dot org and i'll post that with yeah, the podcast yeah too. yeah so um you know we're, and the the events are all volunteer driven um we have a volunteer coordinators um like my our friend brent norlander he coordinates an event in jefferson it's going to be on june 3rd this year and then uh, we have a lot of volunteers that come out to take the kids fishing and work with the kids we have an event uh, in Oregon, we have events at Hag Lake in September, Emigrant Lake, which is down by Medford. That's in June. Um, we have the Jefferson event in June, and then we have one up by Canby in May. And that's all I can – I think that we have – we were going to have one at Lake Prineville, but there's no water in the lake. at Prineville, for un, is somehow it's still super low. I don't know. Um, hopefully that'll get – that lake will get some water back in it soon, but it's, yeah, you can, if you see an event you want to come to, you can come out and volunteer and fish with a child, or you can, if there's listeners that have, know of a special needs child that would like to go fishing, they can register online and just, you can find it all on the website there, how to register for the events. And it's, it's, uh, it's a special day. Most of the events are that we have in Oregon are boating events, but we have a couple shore fishing events also. So at the boating events, you know, volunteers bring their boat and they welcome the child and their parent or guardian into their boat and they take them out and fish for about three hours and help help teach them how to fish, hopefully catch a few and get to, um, ex, you know, share the joy of 
catching fish with these kids that have never done it before. It's really a, we say we come out and volunteer just to bless the kids, but usually the volunteers are the ones that get a lot out of it and they, they come back year after year. So that's a neat program. Yeah. When I read, when you were talking about your retirement and you said, you know, you're heading into this, uh, as a full-time thing and it was, I don't, I don't want to mess up the quote exactly, but you were along the lines of like, you get to see that enrichment almost instantly, you know, just to go and enrich a child's life and in that moment and be able to see how magical that is for the child. It so. is. It's yeah. These kids are, they're under, it's an underserved population group, you know, the special needs community and people don't, they're really up, underrepresented too, like in the, on TV or in the media or, they're just pretty much stay, you know, out of the public eye for the most part. And so they hardly ever get days that are designed just for them, where they are the center of attention and everybody's there to serve them. And so it's a really wonderful day for the kids and their parents just love it. And, the, you know, that the ki- the people are there to to bless their kids and give them a great day. So, yeah, it's something I really enjoy doing it, and it's been fun watching it grow. We've grown a lot since I took it over in 2015, and we have events all over the place. Well, actually, this year I counted this morning. It looks like we'll have about 94 events nationwide, which is will be an all-time high in the 31 years that we've been, you know, of the lifespan of the Cast for Kids Foundation. That's awesome. And I mean, what a cool thing to, you know, it's probably a little slower pace than what you had, but you're probably staying pretty busy. Oh, yeah. You know, you retired into doing a bunch more work. Yeah, it's a new challenge. I kind of enjoy it because we have a staff of eight people and it's my challenge is not catching fish. Now it's, you know, leading a small team to grow and, and, uh, be successful so we can serve more of these kids. And it's, it's just a something fun that I'm enjoying. I get to pick, my team, I, you know, I'm kind of like the coach of a team and I get to pick the employees that we have and, and uh, got some really good ones, you know, on staff. So we're excited about that. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming. I mean, I, uh, first time I got to meet you and to me, you know, you're kind of, it's like meeting a, it, you are a professional athlete. And for me meeting you, I was really excited just to be able to meet you as I've talked to you on the phone a few times and you're just this humble, great, nice guy who loves Jesus and loves his community and, yeah. and wants to serve people who had an awesome fishing career, you know? Yeah. And it's it's been great spending well, an thanks, hour with Sam. you. Sam. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. And be glad to come back and be your guest again someday. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you, Jay. Sure, you bet. Appreciate it. <laughs>